All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Tax Court Podcast. My name is Lee Wilson, and I am with Rick Thakrar. As usual, we will be your host. How you doing, Rick? Doing well. Doing well. How about you? Ah, uh, doing great. Doing great. Enjoying my uh, my time in the limelight. Getting to do another intro like last time. <laughs> um, and again, though, I'm doing it. Uh, you know, because this is a continuation of the deference segment we started on last time. This is going to be part two. And we are going to continue on with uh, a great topic that, as I said last time, Rick uh, is well-versed in, so we've decided to let him handle the bulk of the work. I will chime in from time to time, just like last episode, but he will do the heavy lifting, and um, you know, uh, he's going to do a great job of, of continuing on forward with, uh, with deference, and I think it's going to be great for our listeners, and I'm excited to, I'm excited to be a part of it, Rick. Yeah, thanks, Lee. We're going to continue with deference, and you know, this is based on a lecture that I gave, so um, we have a few more cases to cover. But before we get into those cases, let me give you a quick recap of what we talked about last episode. We kicked it off with a case called Skidmore, uh, Skidmore v. Swift and & Company, and basically, without going into too much detail, what we got out of that case was that rulings, interpretations by agencies, etc., they're given some kind of, you know, deference. It's not Chevron deference, but, you know, some courts take them into consideration. That then led us to Chevron, which is the main case. It was an environmental law case where basically the court came up with a two-part test that basically all regulations are judged by. Uh, real quick, part one, is the statute ambiguous, therefore leaving a gap for the agency to fill with its regulation, with its interpretation? And then step two, is that agency's interpretation reasonable? And so that was a Chevron test. And I know I'm going quick here, but go listen to the last episode if you want more details on this stuff. The next case we did in the last episode was Smiley v. Citibank. And the general rule that came out of that case was basically that regulations drafted in anticipation of litigation doesn't make them any less valid. They still got Chevron deference. And then we finally did Mead in the last episode. Uh, that's United States versus Mead. And in that case, we sort of learned the limits of Chevron deference. It's generally really only applied to formal rulemaking um, regulations that go through the APA process of notice and comment, etc. doesn't apply to the smaller stuff like in the tax context, revenue rulings, rev- revenue procedures, PLRs, etc. And that basically brings us to today's episode. And here we're going to continue with some of the case law. But real quickly, I want to go into treasury regulations. We have two types of uh, treasury regulations. Uh, that's interpretive regulations versus versus legislative regulations. And we sort of uh, talked a little bit about this in Chevron, in that step two of Chevron, how you have explicit and implicit grants of Congress, right? Um, so legislative regulations are those promulgated under a specific direction from Congress in the particular code section requiring Treasury to write implementing regulations. Um, an example for that would be Section 126 uh, C2. And then we have interpretive regulations, uh, which are promulgated only under the general authority of Section 7805A. 
And so now, having mentioned that, that's going to take us into our next case. And we're going to skip ahead a little bit here, and I'm going to uh, take you guys to a 2011 Supreme Court case. And uh, this is Mayo Foundation v. U.S. And the site on that is 131 SCT 704. And like I said, that's a 2011 case. Um, so what you have in this case is the Mayo Foundation for Medical Education and Research is medical facility and it hires residents um, to train them to become full-fledged doctors. Um, I guess they're already doctors, but to become better doctors. Well, so what you have is um, FICA requires employees and employers to pay taxes on all wages employees receive. Um you know, we all sort of know that everyone that works um, get taxes withheld from their paycheck, um, from their wages. And Section 3101A and uh, 3111A uh, define wages to include all numeration for employment. Um, FICA defines employment as any service performed by an employee for a person employing him, uh, but excludes from taxation any services performed in the employee of a school, college, or university if such service is performed by a student who is enrolled and regularly attending classes. And so since 1951, the Treasury Department had always construed the student exception to exempt from taxation students who worked for their schools as an incident to uh, and for the purpose of pursuing a course of study. Um, in 2004, the Treasury Department issued regulations providing that the services of a full-time employee are not incident to and for the purpose of pursuing a course of study, so um, not entitled to the student exception, basically. And they further interpreted um, a full-time employee to mean any employee that normally uh, works 40 hours or more per week. And there's actually an example in the regulations which specifically um, points out residents, basically says residents aren't students and therefore aren't uh, subject to the student exception. So now Mayo is um, filing the refund suit in district court seeking to get a refund of all the taxes withheld from their residents' paychecks. And part of the argument here by Mayo is that the regulation should not be given deference, that it is contrary to the statute, that these these residents should be considered students, which they aren't under these regulations. So the district court grants Mayo's motion for summary judgment, and the court also holds that the regulation is invalid under a national muffler standard. And national muffler is another Supreme Court case from 1979, which we haven't discussed, but um, sets out a number of factors uh, to determine if a um, regulation is considered valid or invalid, it should be considered valid, should be given deference, essentially. The case gets kicked up to the Court of Appeals, who uses a Chevron deference test and finds the regulation to be a permissible interpretation of the statute. And then the case gets kicked up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court also applies a Chevron deference test, um, under step one, they find that the statute does not define the term student. And so uh, they find that the plain text of the statute nor um, the district court's interpretation of the exemption speaks with precision necessary to find 
definitively whether the statute applies to medical residents. Um, and they move on to step two of the Chevron test. And during this part of the arguments, Mayo argues that under the step two analysis, that the Supreme Court should use a multi-factor analysis, should use the multi-factor analysis used for tax regulations in national muffler. And the IRS argues that national muffler has been superseded by Chevron. And just really briefly, what national muffler says is a regulation may have particular force if it is a substantially contemporaneous construction of the statute by those presumed to have been aware of congressional intent. If the regulation dates from a later period, the manner in which it evolved merits inquiry. Other relevant considerations are the length of time the regulation has been in effect, the reliance placed on it, the consistency of the commissioner's interpretations, and the degree of scrutiny Congress has devoted to the regulation during subsequent reenactments of the statute. So basically, national muffler creates um, all these different factors that you have to judge to determine whether a um, regulation should be given any force. And so the Supreme now takes up the issue of, do you apply that step two analysis that we saw in Chevron to these tax regulations or under the step two analysis, do you now apply these national muffler factors? And what the court does is it actually ends up going through um, various other Supreme Court cases that have used uh, Chevron deference and uh, done a step two analysis and basically say that all of those cases have actually rejected all of these national muffler standards, all these national muffler factors. It's pretty interesting. They say, we have repeatedly held that agency inconsistency is not a basis for declining to analyze the agency's interpretation under the Chevron framework. And that's from Brand X, uh, which we'll go over soon. But that was one of those uh, national muffler standards. They also say, we have inst instructed that neither antiquity nor uh, contem contemporaneity with a statute is a condition of a regulation's validity. And that's from the Smiley case that we discussed. Uh, once again, another national muffler factor. And they also say, we have found it immaterial to, to our analysis that a regulation was prompted by litigation. And once again, that was from Smiley, which we went over. And then finally, they say, indeed, in United Dominion Industries, Inc., we expressly invited the Treasury Department to amend its regulations if troubled by the consequences of our resolution of the case. So basically, you have the Supreme Court here saying every single one of the natural muffler factors we've rejected since that case. So why would we now apply that? And the court actually goes on to say, and this is a good quote. Aside from our past citation of national muffler, Mayo has not advanced any justification for applying a less deferential standard of review to Treasury regulations than we apply to the rules of any other agency. In the absence of such justification, we are not inclined to carve out an approach to administrative review good for tax law only. To the contrary, we have expressly recognized the importance of maintaining a uniform approach to judicial, to judicial review of administrative decisions. We see no reason why our review of tax regulations should not be guided by agency expertise pursuant to Chevron to the same extent as our review of other regulations. 
And then uh, another thing that uh, Mayo argues in this case is they get into the distinction between specific authority regs and general authority regs. The argument is that in two previous cases, Rowan and Vogel, um, there were different standards applied to different kinds of regs. Uh, in those two decisions, the Supreme Court had said, and these decisions came out before Chevron, in two decisions predating Chevron, this court stated that we owe the Treasury Department's interpretation less deference when it is contained in a rule adopted under that general authority than when it is issued under a specific grant of authority to define a statutory term or prescribe a method of executing a statutory provision. So uh, basically what we have here is Mayo asking the court to um, provide less deference to a regulation if it is a regulation pursuant to the general authority versus the specific grant. And and this regulation was promulgated under the general authority of um, Section 7805A. But the court goes – the court doesn't buy this. The court says, since Rowan and Vogel were cited, however, the administrative landscape has changed significantly. We have held that Chevron deference is appropriate when it appears that Congress delegated authority – to the agency generally to make rules carrying the force of law and that the agency interpretation claiming deference was promulgated in the exercise of that authority. Our inquiry in that regard does not turn on whether Congress's delegation of authority was general or specific. Uh, we believe Chevron and Meade rather than National Muffler and Rowan provide the appropriate framework for evaluating the full-time employee rule. And the court actually went on, on to hold that this regulation was valid under a um, Chevron step two analysis and was granted deference. So basically, what are the takeaways from Mayo Foundation? Why did we go over this? One, national muffler no longer applies to treasury regulations. It's Chevron deference. It's not national muffler. It's the um, test under Chevron step two. Also, there's no distinction anymore when uh, determining whether to grant Treasury regulations of deference between whether they were enacted under the general grant of authority of um, 7805A or whether they were um, granted under a um, specific grant and whether they were enacted under a specific grant of authority. So a uh, pretty big case when it comes to tax law. I mean, it, this has really put Treasury regulations on par with all other regulations promulgated by the federal government, by other executive agencies. Um, so a really big case for tax purposes. So, Rick, uh, in the Mayo decision, did, did Mayo, when they were performing their step one analysis, you know, going through uh, the statute at issue – do you know? Do they go through, or do they parse through any legislative history? Was that part of their of their uh, their decision on step one, or, or or what did you see in there? You know, Lee, um, the the court was pretty short on their step one analysis in this case. They basically just said that the statute doesn't define the term student, and so you know the precise question as to whether a medical resident is a student isn't answered. And I guess that's the ambiguity there. They didn't really go into legislative history. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it just wasn't relevant, so they didn't cite it. Um, and they didn't go into much statutory construction or any of the other stuff. And it may just be as simple as the fact that the statute on its face is ambiguous. What What is a student, right? Is a medical resident a student? I don't know. 
the court certainly didn't know. That's why they said it was ambiguous. So uh, there's no real answer to that. The court just didn't go into it. I know they cite to the circuit court opinion saying they agree with the circuit court. To be honest with you, I don't have the circuit court opinion on me. I read it a long time ago, and I just I don't remember if they went into it. But generally, you'll see that step one analysis does contain statutory construction, legislative history, etc. It just it just wasn't apparent in this case. Yeah, like because in Chevron they certainly did, and yeah, and obviously it, you, you're right. Uh, it seems that that is definitely a consideration in some cases, but you didn't see it here. Yeah, and and, and like I mentioned in our last episode. We have a great case that we're going to do later on. It's a D.C. Circuit case, uh, Loving, which does a great step one analysis. And that's why I include it in my presentation, because it's just a really good step one analysis. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Cool. Um, So that brings us to our next case, which is National Cable and Telecommunications Association v. Brandex Internet Services. And this is a 1995 Supreme Court case. And... We're going a little out of order here. This case came before Mayo, but in my mind, this just works better this way. So we did Mayo, now we're doing Brand X. So briefly, what you have here is a dispute over a declaratory ruling of the FCC, which said cable companies providing broadband are not, and this is a quote, telecommunication service under the Telecommunications Act of 1996. The 1996 Act was promulgated in wake of AT&T's breakup. Um, AT&T was a monopoly, so it was broken up. And what the 1996 Act did was require telecommunication service providers, and that's a term of art, telecommunication service, to sell access to their networks to the public. So companies like AT&T had to sell access to their phone lines to DSL providers. Whereas cable companies like National Cable and Telecommunications would not. So Brandex wants access to these broadband lines. Now, this gets way more complicated, but for tax podcasts, that should serve us fine. Uh, So this goes to the Ninth Circuit, who rules for the petitioner, which is Brandex, and vacates the declaratory ruling. And what's important is that the Ninth Circuit didn't employ a Chevron deference test here. Rather, it ruled on stare decisis, based on its prior ruling in AT&T Corp v. Portland, and the site on that is 216F3D871. And so in that case, uh, the Ninth Circuit held that cable modem service is a telecommunication service. So being a telecommunication service, it also has to sell access uh, to the public. So that's what the Ninth Circuit ruled. The case got kicked up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court starts out by determining whether the Ninth Circuit should have applied a Chevron deference test. And so the Supreme Court says, yes, a Chevron deference test should have been used because this is a regulation. And the Chevron test is that Chevron requires a federal court to defer to an agency construction, even if it differs from what the court believes to be the best interpretation, if the particular statute is when the agency's jurisdiction to administer, the statute is ambiguous on the point at issue, and the agency construction is reasonable. But what if, as here, we have a prior ruling, stare decisis, which is what the Ninth Circuit ruled on? Well, this is what the Supreme Court says about that. 
a court's prior construction of a statute trumps an agency construction otherwise entitled to Chevron deference only if the prior court decision holds that its construction follows from the unambiguous terms of the statute and thus leaves no room for agency discretion. This principle follows from Chevron itself, end quote. So what the Supreme Court is saying here is that Chevron establishes a presumption that Congress, if it left ambiguity in a statute, meant for the implementing agency to resolve that ambiguity, and that's by regulations. And so allowing judicial precedent to foreclose an agency interpretation of an ambiguous statute as the Ninth Circuit had done would allow a court's interpretation to override the agency's and Congress had specifically left this to the agency to do. So the court basically held that the better rule is to hold judicial interpretations contained in precedent to the same demanding Chevron step one standard that applies if the court is reviewing the agency construction on a blank slate, meaning only judicial precedent holding that the statute unambiguously forecloses the agency interpretation and therefore contains no gap for the agency to fill, displaces a conflicting agency construction. So basically what you had here was the Supreme Court saying that only where the statute is unambiguous can stare decisis rule the day. So now there's this sort of pre-test you have to do to see, well, I guess it's technically part of the Chevron Step 1 test, now you have to see whether the statute is unambiguous to even see if precedent can apply, because if the statute was ambiguous, it wasn't for the court to decide. It's through agency interpretation for that ambiguity to get cleared up. So, Rick, real quick, um, what I'm hearing from Brand X here based on this discussion, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially an agency regulation can essentially overrule a court decision, a prior court decision on an issue? Am I hearing that right? Um, sort of. Uh, a treasury regulation can fill, or any regulation, sorry, I always say treasury regulation because we deal in tax, um, but it's there to fill a gap, right? So basically what happens is the court has to decide if there's a gap to fill if the statute's ambiguous. And if the statute is ambiguous, that prior judicial precedent, that stare decisis, it doesn't matter because it was never the court's job to fill that gap. It was always the agency's job, right? So um, in that case, yeah, the agency regulation would trump it because it's the one that was supposed to fill that gap. Uh, I think that's basically what Brand X is getting to. It's, um, it's the ambiguity in the statute determines who gets to fill the gap or if there is a gap to fill. I see. I see. Okay. Well, as an interesting side note there, I've got a, uh, through, through my own research, I've got a quote here from IRS chief counsel uh, from an ABA meeting uh, a little bit after, um, in the middle of 2012, so after, after this decision um, and after uh, some other decisions we'll discuss. But essentially, his comments were that uh, most pre-Chevron Supreme Court decisions should be read as final determinations that can't be changed through regulations. While for post-Chevron cases, we will have to look for whether the word ambiguous is used. Does that make sense to you? I mean, does uh, that... Yeah, and, and Lee, that will actually make a lot more sense after we discuss the next case, which is Home Concrete. But basically what that's getting to, and this will 
like I said, make a lot more sense once we discuss home concrete. What that's really getting to is in a pre-Chevron world, these courts ruling on, you know, these statutes never thought about the term ambiguous, right? It wasn't part of the framework that they were looking at. They were just ruling on the statute. It's Chevron that really brought that term ambiguity into the lexicon of um, deference and, you know, whether respect or regulation. And so every court post-Chevron knows that, and when they use that term ambiguity, use it in that context, right? Um, That's a great question that leads us into the next case, home concrete, because that's what home concrete is all about. So um, why don't we jump into that? Great. So home concrete is United States versus home concrete and supply LLC. And the site on that is 132 Supreme Court 1836, and it's a 2012 case. So what we have in Home Concrete is a taxpayer who overstated the basis of property sold. And this led to an understatement of income, and that understatement of income exceeded 25% of the stated gross income on the tax return filed. Now, as many of you know, the IRS has three years under the statute of limitations to audit a tax return. However, if there is a substantial understatement, which is 25% of the stated gross income, that statute is extended to a six-year statute. So the fight here is whether the understatement, which is a result of the overstated basis, is subject to the six-year statute or whether only the three-year statute applies. Because if it's a three-year statute, the IRS is out of luck because this is past the three-year statute, but it's still within that six-year statute. And so here, we've actually had a prior decision by the Supreme Court in Colony, and in that case, um, basically the exact same fact pattern dealing with exactly the same code section, although under the previous code, the 1939 code, you had the court, the Supreme Court in Colony ruling that the taxpayer's overstatement of basis does not fall within the scope of the six-year statute of limitations. Uh, Basically, what the Colony Court said was that the six-year statute is for omitted income. It's not for, you know, uh, an understatement of income. So why is this relevant to a discussion on deference to Treasury regulations? The reason is that the IRS in December of 2010 promulgated a reg, and that's Treasury Regulation Section 301.6501E-1, which stated that an understated amount of gross income resulting from an overstatement of unrecovered cost or other basis constitutes an omission of gross income and thus would fall under the six-year statute of limitations uh, that the IRS is relying on here. Now, this is after the year issue, obviously. And so one of the arguments that the IRS makes here in Home Concrete is that there's a reg on point and that it needs to be respected. So this is where Brand X comes in, and this is why we did Brand X right before Home Concrete. The Supreme Court here notes that in Brand X, the court had written that a court's prior judicial construction of a statute trumps an agency construction otherwise entitled to Chevron deference only if the prior court decision 
holds that its construction follows from the unambiguous terms of the statute. And why is this important? Because on the one hand, we have Colony interpreting the statute saying that the six-year statute of limitations doesn't apply to an overstatement of basis versus an IRS regulation, which on the other hand says that an overstatement of basis constitutes an omission from gross income and thus is subject to the six-year statute of limitation. So the court's job here is to figure out what controls. Is it colony? Is it the new regulation? Should the new regulation be given deference? And one of the things that the government points out here is that the colony court said that the statute is not unambiguous. So what the IRS is arguing here is that Colony can't control. Colony never said that the statute is unambiguous. In fact, it said it's not unambiguous. And as we know from Brand X, a judicial interpretation or judicial construction of a statute only trumps the agency construction where the terms of the statute are unambiguous. So this is the argument that the Supreme Court is dealing with here. And what does the Supreme Court say? It says, we do not accept this argument. In our view, Colony has already interpreted the statute, and there is no longer any different construction that is consistent with Colony and available for adoption by the agency. So interestingly, the court says the reason why Brandex held that prior judicial construction, unless dealing with unambiguous statutes, cannot trump an agency construction is because it is for the agency, not the courts, to fill statutory gaps. The fact that a statute is unambiguous means that there is no gap for the agency to fill, and thus no room for agency discretion. So, Colony was drafted 30 years before Chevron. And so the court basically says the language that the Colony court used of not unambiguous should not be judged in a post-Chevron context, and that this court believed that the colony court thought Congress had directly spoken to the question at hand. Um, Here's a good quote from that. There is no reason to believe that the linguistic ambiguity noted by colony reflects a post-Chevron conclusion that Congress had delegated gap-filling power to the agency. At the same time, there is every reason to believe that the court thought that Congress had directly spoken to the question at hand and thus left no gap for the agency to fill. So the question is whether the court and colony concluded that the statute left such a gap, and in the court's opinion, it makes clear that it did not. And now, given the principles of stare decisis, the court has to follow the colony holding, and there being no gap to fill, the government gap-filling regulation cannot change Colony's interpretation of the statute. And so that's basically home concrete. And so just like Brand X, it says that you have to first determine whether there is any ambiguity in the statute for there to be a gap to fill. Um, only this is now applied in a tax context, which is why it's relevant to a tax court podcast. And so, Rick, real quick, before we move on along along these lines that you've been discussing here in Home Concrete, I, I just wanted to pull a quote from Scalia that was originally from his dissent in the Brand X decision, where he then later quoted himself in uh, 
as part of his concurrence in, in Mayo, he, he says, and I quote, Once a court has decided upon its de novo construction of the statute, there no longer is a different construction that is consistent with the court's holding and available for adoption by the agency. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, it to me, and I could be completely wrong about this, but it sort of sounds to me like, uh, well, obviously Scalia doesn't agree with Brand X's holding because he dissented in that opinion. Um, but to me, it sort of sounds like Justice Scalia is saying that if a court gets to interpret the statute first, it's the law. And, you know, whether there's gap filling or not, the agency can't overrule that with their gap filling. I, it's almost as if he says the ambiguity doesn't matter if the court gets to it first. And this whole you know, thing that they talk about in Brand X and Home Concrete about how the ambiguity should be filled by the agency. That was Congress's intent. It seems to me that he doesn't really buy that or care about it. I don't know. I, I you know, I'm not in Justice Scalia's mind, but that's my interpretation of it. But it's the dissent. It's not it's not the law. Okay. Yeah. No, good point. Well, hey, real quick to uh, on another note before we move on, just so our listeners know, uh, this home concrete decision uh, made big waves a few years ago when it was decided in the whole, you know, and if you practice in the tax court and you deal with taxpayers, this three year versus six year statute of limitations is very important. Uh, very important to be aware of when it applies, when it doesn't apply. And obviously home concrete uh, was a big win for taxpayers. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, HR 32, HR 3236 was passed in both houses, and essentially um, it's this provision changed this result and basically reduced home concrete to, to nothing in that regard. And it's essentially, so now, you know, the six-year statute limitations, uh, opposite of what happened in home concrete, now does apply when you've got an, an, a, an understatement of income or an omission of income based on an overstatement of basis. So that's all gone. So you can essentially disregard uh, that part of home concrete. But you know, our, our our deal here is not in the in that. It's in the it's in the deference part, and that that has that's not affected by that at all. It's just an interesting note. So for your for your own practices, you know, know that that's that's changing soon as far as the uh, the old rule under home concrete about the overstatement of basis and the six year rule. Yeah, and that's Congress's choice, right? Congress makes the laws. They can change any law they want. So um, we see that they're changing that. The funny thing about that, though, Lee, is part of Home Concrete and Colony and, you know, just going through this case, they went through legislative history and they said that the reason that the overstatement of basis wasn't included in that six-year statute of limitations was because an overstatement of basis still reports the income, right? It still reports the transaction. And that six-year statute was really to give the IRS more time to find stuff that wasn't reported. And that if it was, that three-year statute was fine, you know, for the IRS to go after it. The IRS had the information. They had the transaction here. They could analyze that within three years. It seems like Congress has done a 180 on that. I'd be um, curious to see the legislative history accompanying this new bill to see if their mind has changed on that aspect of it or whether this is just in reaction to, you know, home concrete, et cetera. Um, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. Well, obviously, you know, at this time, at this particular time, they agree with, uh, you know, the IRS's uh, and treasury's uh, prior position that, that didn't win. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, 
I actually thought that that old legislative history and that old reasoning was was pretty clever, and I thought it made a lot of sense. But um, you know, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a lawmaker. What what do I know? Right, it does make a, make a lot of sense, and I think you know for some of our listeners who aren't familiar, um, you know this this I, I think you know a big a big uh, motivator for for all this stuff was the the son of boss transactions, right? The, the oh yeah, tax yeah. shelters where they kind of can that you know where a lot of this stuff is 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 done in a way where they can't the information isn't as transparent. You know, uh, sure. Yeah. But but anyway, so here we are, and uh, that's where we are now. So just just an update. So see, you don't just get history; you get uh, current events here too. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, although who knows how current will be when someone listens to this? <laughs> Hopefully, it's up there for a long time, and it's not that current. But who knows? Um, true. <laughs> Good but, point. But uh, actually, let's uh, let's cut it off here again um, and make this a three-parter simply because we're up against that 30-minute mark again, and we still have a couple more cases to go over. So let's wrap it up here and bring it back in the next episode. What do you think? All right. That sounds good. That sounds good. And I guess uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll close us out then. Um, if you want to find out a little bit more about Rick, you can go to his website, and I'll let him name it because I never say it. What is it? Uh, ThackerLawFirm.com. Okay, ThackerLawFirm.com. And for me, Lee Wilson, uh, you can find out more about me and my practice at the Wilson Firm, PLLC.com. And I actually have that written on a post-it note, Lee, so I could have said it this time. Beautiful. And for those of, uh, those of our listeners who listened to the last one, they'll, they'll know uh, what Rick's talking about with that post-it note. So, hey, congratulations, man. <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks for listening to uh, this episode. We'll catch you next time. Later, guys. Bye.